So at 8.30, I was a little bit nervous walking up here because I hadn't spoken since Christmas Eve. And yeah, I've been honest, I, I get a little bit nervous sometimes. And I forgot to pray before the message. And boy, do I regret that. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? God, we're going to talk this morning about your church. We're going to talk about your son Jesus and, and what he experienced when he went to his home church. God, we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, what it is that you've called us to be as church. And we're also going to address some of the difficult questions of who we are and how we think and maybe what we really want. And sometimes that stuff doesn't sit so well. And so, God, our only agenda this morning would be to be more like you, to think more like Jesus, to, to see the world more like Jesus, and, and to see ourselves in an honest way and where there's things that we need to address and, and maybe to change or to, to take a good look at, God, we just pray you would lovingly help us to do that so that we could be the people and that we could be the church that uh, you have called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke the fourth chapter, we're going we're gonna to pick it up midway through there, but it's going to be Luke 4. You've been hearing a lot lately uh, around here, if you're, if you're around very much at all, about what God has really put on my heart about us being ambassadors of change to bring about a godly culture to, a, to an ungodly world. doesn't mean there's bad people that we live around. That's not my point at all. My, my point is to say that as Christians, we are to lead culture with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so I believe as a congregation, God has really put us in a position where we're supposed to do that within the communities and in the area that we live. Well, we need to understand what that means and, and how important that really is. You've, you've heard us talk a lot about life groups, about Alpha, about We Care Ministry, about, about some of the ways that, that we're hoping that God can use to help you share the good news of the gospel of Jesus to reach the men and the women and the children of this area with what God really says in His Word about who Jesus really is and how much it is that He really loves us. And so the more that we can involve ourselves, the more that we can learn and grow, the better off we're going to be at that. So in order to accomplish that, we've got to, we've got to do the really hard part. The, the hard part isn't signing up for a life group. That might be a little bit different. Maybe going to Alpha might make you a little bit nervous. Maybe volunteering or even going to church might be outside your comfort zone. I'll tell you where it gets tough. Where being a Christian really gets difficult is the Gospel calls us to actually go into the world. We've got to carry what we learn here on a Sunday morning, the things that we say that we know and we believe, and we've got to carry with us the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. We are the ones that God has called to bring the godly culture into the broken world. That's not easy. Because the first thing that everybody thinks about is, well, they're going to say that I'm not a good Christian. That might be true. You might not be the Christian yet that you want to be. But we're called to bring Jesus into the broken culture of our world. So the question then becomes, who will you go to? Who's your mission field? Who is it that God is calling you to share your imperfect faith and the perfect love of Jesus with? And that's what it amounts to. You don't have to be the perfect Christian because you serve the perfect Savior. Your faith can be imperfect. You don't have to know everything. You just have to know Him personally. 
We're going to talk about more of that in a little bit, and I want to get to the text this morning, and it's all going to weave itself together. And fair warning, this text today can be left on a real superficial level or also can get real personal. It might get convicting in some ways. It, it might even be challenging. But it's one that we've got to deal with, and we've got to deal with it honestly, because if we're going to carry the good news of the gospel out into our world, we've got to be aware of the reality that we're entering and the reality of who we are. So Luke 4, starting in uh, verse 14, it's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's just been baptized. He's just spent 40 days out in the desert, and now he's going to go back and get started by going to Nazareth, his hometown. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus just spent 40 days out in the desert being tempted. The Holy Spirit led him into the desert. It was important at the beginning of his ministry because Jesus needs to be able to identify with where you and I live. We can't say that he understands if he's actually not been through it. And so the the Holy Spirit took him out into the desert and Satan has 40 days to work on Jesus. Jesus fasts, doesn't eat or drink for 40 days. Can't imagine. And the devil hits him with his very best stuff. What he's trying to do is he's trying to lure Jesus into doing the very same thing that he tries to do to you and I, and that's to get us to settle, not not to reach for what God has called us to, but get to settle for something else, something less, something different. What the devil's trying to do do is to get Jesus to settle for a fake or a a false or an imitation version of what God really has for him. And it's the same thing the devil tries to do with you. He says, yeah, I know that's what you're supposed to have, but this is easy. This you can have right now. This is pretty close and it looks pretty good and it's going to feel great in the moment. He just doesn't tell you in the moment. And so Jesus goes into the desert and... The devil is going to tempt him in ways that we can really understand. He tempts him because he's hungry. He says, turn the stones into bread. You're the Son of God. You can do anything you want. He says, jump off that cliff and let God save you because surely God won't let you fall. And he says, hey, stand up here and take a look. Take a look around. Everything you can see, every kingdom out there, they're all yours. I'll give them all to you. Just, Just worship me. Jesus says, no, he's not going to fall to temptation. But what happens is, in those three, he understands some of the biggest things that we deal with. Basic needs. We can do crazy things trying to have our basic needs met. How about God's protection of us and our family? What exactly do we expect God to do? That's really what he's saying is, hey, God's going to protect you. Jump. Let him show you. Let him show you. And finally, he's trying to lure him with power. And power is one of the biggest problems that we have in our world today. People trying to seize power that really isn't theirs. But for the moment, they can feel like it's theirs. See, Jesus didn't fall to any of that temptation. Instead, what God did is He used that that time in Jesus to prepare Him to begin His real work with and for us. See, Satan did his very best to distract Jesus. And then Jesus spends the next three years attacking Satan. And the way that he did it in the desert was the way that he did it throughout his ministry. It was with the Word of God. It was by preaching and living God's truth, by performing miracles and healing people. And what happened was that he showed the devil, here's the things that you are powerless to stop. These are the things that you can't do anything to get in the way of, and that is the power of God at work. And then Jesus says, you and I have that same thing available to us. Don't tell me that you can't help falling to temptation. Yes, you can. 
We've got the same things available to us that Jesus did, and that's God's Word, and that's the love of God. thing is, we do what Jesus didn't, and we choose to accept the devil's substitutes. Going on in 14, a report about it went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified back all, by all. People did back then exactly what people do today, right? People talk. Hey, did you hear Jesus is out there? He's teaching. He's doing miracles. Yeah, apparently that guy walks now. And there's a few things that have been done. Not a lot. He's just picking up steam. But people are talking. Word is spreading. And people talk good and bad. For now, Jesus was appreciated. He was respected by everybody. They liked what they were, he- they liked what they were hearing for the moment. Verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. If this was a movie and there was a narrator, the narrator's voice would be, And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And his voice would go down and the music would be of such that you knew it was about to change. Something was about to be different. He went home. When he hit his hometown, something not good was about to happen. He comes back to his old friends, to his parents' old friends, to his old church, to the religious folks that he grew up with. He came to his hometown and was going to start teaching. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. First of all, Adrian and I had the opportunity in November to go to the Holy Land, and, and I had one of the things that I've always assumed just completely crushed right before my eyes. I thought all these synagogues that we read about in the New Testament were these big, ornate, beautiful, fancy, glitzy, glamorous temples. I just pictured them to be these wow places. You know, places that were worthy of worshiping the Creator of the universe, right? Turns out I I, I couldn't have been more wrong. This is actually a picture from inside the synagogue in Nazareth. That's how big it is. I'm standing at the door. That's maybe 75 people full. The the pots in the corner are where the scrolls were kept. There's one of them, uh, a a likeness of a scroll on top of the little stone thing. Then you see the three steps around the outside, which is where people would sit. And maybe all told, it would fit 100 people if it was a really big occasion. Comfortably, maybe 75. It was small. So I'm thinking, well, that had to be an unusual one. So I took a picture of the one in Capernaum. awful lot of Jesus' ministry happened here. They didn't have a roof on that one, but that's the one that's actually in Capernaum near Philip's mom's house. And that's how big it is. The same pillars and the same benches along the side. That one would maybe fit a hundred and a quarter. Jesus started His ministry very small. Jesus went to where the people met. He went to His own people and started with the folks who knew Him best. It wasn't a huge cathedral that sat thousands of people like an arena. No, it was, a, it was a small synagogue in a small town. We know from a lot of passages in the New Testament that Jesus' custom was to go to the synagogue on Saturday because Saturday is and st- was and still is Jewish Sabbath. His parents had instilled in him this habit that Saturday is Sabbath day. It's what we do. It's the same kind of thing that we encourage you to develop with you and your children. The habit of going to church on Sunday morning to take the Sabbath. And the Bible says what he did is he stood up to read. Other passages talk about Jesus teaching here and there and and wherever else it was. But here he's going to read, and that's different. Seven people read on a Sabbath day, seven men. One of them was the high priest, the priest of the synagogue. Uh, One of them was a Levite from the, the order of Levi, the priests. 
And then the other five were men in good standing who were members of the, of the synagogue. Those were the seven that would read from the scrolls. And because Jesus was a, essentially a lifelong member of this synagogue, he was given the opportunity to read. And the Bible says that he stood to read because that was the custom. He stood, and then when the teacher came to teach, the teacher would sit down. But Jesus wasn't here to teach. Jesus was here to read. And it says in verse 17 that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They chose the scroll and they handed it to him. He knew the passage that he wanted and he turned to that passage. Jesus knew what we would call the Bible. They had scrolls. We've got a Bible. Jesus knew it. When he saw that he got the scroll of Isaiah, he knew the part that he wanted to read, and so he opened it to the place that he could read them this section of it. They chose the scroll. He chose the passage. Their eyes are fixed on him because they've been waiting for this. What's he going to do? When he first has a chance to to do something, what's he going to do? It says that he read, and then he began to explain it, which is he began to teach. And what ended up happening was the people had to, as they're staring at him, fixed and stunned, going, wait a minute. We've been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah to come, for this passage to be fulfilled. And you're telling us, Jesus, this is what they're thinking, you're telling us this is you that we've been reading about? You, Joseph's son, you've got to be giving me a break. No way. Verse 22, it says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Wow, he grew up and did well. And he said to them, Doubtless you'll quote me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. See, they wanted the signs and the wonders and the miracles. They wanted the show. Jesus was already something of a circus for them. They wanted to see the stuff. They wanted to see the act, and yet what he's doing is reading and just talking. And why is it that he wasn't doing miracles? Because in his hometown, the people had very little faith in him. They were doubters and they were skeptics, and they didn't entirely believe him because he was just Jesus, Joseph's son. Read what's in the scroll, but then leave it there. Don't start talking to us also. Verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Right there, He did it. He spoke to their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. That was enough. That was not what they wanted to hear, and yet it was so true. And this morning's passage is the same for us. It isn't what we want to hear, but it can be so true. See, Jesus has read the text from Isaiah. He's given context. He said, I'm the one that it's talking about. Jesus said, I am what the Scripture is speaking of. Now Jesus gives them the application of what they've just heard, and they're not going to like it. It turns out Jesus is more of a, of a God-truth teller than a hometown team player. And when we started the Open Door eight and a half years ago, we said, you know what, we're going to preach the whole truth of God's Word whether people like it or not. 
Is it our job to make you feel bad? No. Is it my job to speak to you one at a time from up here? Absolutely not. But you know what? If you hear something that kind of puts a pit in your stomach, it's called conviction. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the guy we pray for every Sunday. Pick it up with Him. So often it isn't the text and the context that bothers us. It's the application. It's the what does it mean to me and what do I have to do? He goes on in verse 25 and he says, But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months because there was a drought. And a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sodom to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Sidon was a, an area most often mentioned as a pair of Tyre and Sidon. It was north of Nazareth in what's modern-day Lebanon. The Jewish people didn't like it, didn't respect it, and things didn't go very well because they didn't have a lot of faith up there. Even so, Jesus visited and performed miracles Himself. He used Zarephath as an example because the widow there was a foreigner. In a foreign land, she was a woman that everybody would have ignored and passed by and nobody would have given a second thought to because she was all alone. And yet God sent the mighty prophet Elijah to minister to her. See, by the time Jesus got on the scene, the Jews were a pretty fiercely arrogant people about their culture and their religion. They didn't particularly welcome and integrate very well with others outside of their Hebrew lineage. And this woman wasn't one of them. Then Jesus has the audacity to mention Naaman, a Syrian of all people. Things today aren't a whole lot different than things were back there. He was the wrong guy from the wrong side of the border, the wrong country. Everything about him was wrong. What in the world is Jesus talking about? What's he trying to say? Is Jesus trying to say that God cares about foreigners? He cares about widows. He cares about people who couldn't be more different from us. Is Jesus trying to say there's actually something good in them, in people who are not like us, that God also was concerned about them? No way! This is a proud group of people, and this is our hometown boy. And he comes home and he tells them in his first day that they're not completely unique and that God's grace actually extends to others who aren't like them? No way! They don't want to hear it. They have built a world for themselves they are very comfortable in. They wanted Jesus to heal their sick people. He wanted them, they wanted Him to do miracles in front of them that they could ooh and ah over. To soothe their egos and build up their pridefulness and support and encourage their ethnic arrogance and embrace their prejudice and justify their beliefs. Next thing you know, Jesus is going to probably try to bring these people to church. And they went from being so happy that He was there to wondering what in the world happened to Him. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and they drove Him out of the town and they brought Him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw Him down the cliff. You know why? They didn't like His message. They didn't like His message. His own people, His hometown, folks He grew up with didn't like His message. And they decided the only thing that they can do at this point is to kill Him. We don't want to hear a message that isn't the message that we want. And so they decided to kill Him. And I realized in 2,000 years, 
Things haven't changed that much. I see churches all over the place sucking the life out of people. Churches still do it today because people talk about things that we don't want to hear, believe things from the Bible that we'd rather ignore and not look at. So here's kind of a cool thing. This can come to life a little bit. Uh, That's Deidre. This is the cliff outside of Nazareth that drops straight down 1,000, 1,200 feet, something like that. Please notice where the photographer is standing. Please notice the safe distance, the wise approach that he's taking to this photo. And then I think that her heels are actually on the rock and her heels are over the edge just because she thought that would be fun to do to me. But that's actually the cliff that they drove him out of that synagogue down the valley up the hill and the crowd pinned him against the edge of that cliff because they wanted to throw him down and silence him. Because they didn't like the message that included other people. Now the the thing that's kind of cool is what you're really looking at. There is a, a whole lot of Bible history. And the history really, really hit me hard when I realized 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood within about 40 feet of right there, one side or the other, for a very different purpose and not of His own will. In the same place that Deidre stood 2,000 years later so that I could take a picture. And an awful lot of the Bible came together. Now what's cool is what's behind her is called the Jezreel Valley. You'll notice how uh, incredibly arid it is. There's fields everywhere. There, there's water. It's just lush. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, it's bordered really Lower Galilee that we hear a lot about to the north, Samaria, Jordan Valley, Mount Carmel. Directly across it, and if it wasn't a little cloudy, you could see it's a place called Tel Megiddo. Uh, it's a, a hill where the town of Megiddo was on. And if that rings a bell, uh, this valley that they wanted to throw Jesus in is also in the book of Revelation called the Valley of Armageddon. They wanted to end Jesus' life in the valley where it's all going to end on earth. They didn't know that. But you look at the way that God threads all of this stuff together and it's pretty impressive. A lot of Bible right there in that picture and in in the background to that picture. The synagogue is a matter of blocks away. And they thought the only answer to the messenger was to throw him off that cliff. This angry, hateful, prejudiced crowd brought Jesus against his will to throw him over that cliff down to the valley below to silence him by death. It says in verse 30, though, but passing through their midst, he went away. You could fit a crowd a lot larger than what could fit in that synagogue, which makes me think that folks are outside the door and spilling out into the street to hear what was going on. And when word filtered through the crowd of what he had the audacity to say, they all got together. The 75 or 100 that were packed in probably became a crowd of a few hundred. And it would have been very easy to pin him to the edge of that cliff. And the Bible says that passing through their midst, he went away. It was like they couldn't do a thing about it. Why? Because it wasn't time for his death yet. This arrogant crowd of religious fools weren't the the ones that were going to bring him to his death. Not here, not this way, not this day. See, the folks in this passage, they came to church to see the spectacle. The local kid made good. They came to church to hear about themselves and to feel good. To hear someone tell them how much God loved them and and that they were perfect just the way that they were. All of their junk in tow. Jesus of their own little Nazareth looked like he'd actually done something with his life. 
This is where the passage starts to hit home possibly for you and I. So I want you to think about your thoughts and your motivations in life for a moment. I want you to think about what really drives you. How you really see the people in the world around you and what you really expect from church. First of all, if you go to church to see the sights or to see who's there or just come to church to get your fix once in a while because you feel good about it or only to listen to the preacher that you like best, stop. Please stop. Stop going to church for whatever fix you get from it and and for the way that you feel like you've done the right thing for a moment. Stop doing that and start running to Jesus. You can meet Him here at church. But don't come to church for any reason other than to run to see Him. Not what He can give you, but for who He is. Because here's the lesson that we learned from this group in Nazareth. Church isn't going to save you. It's not going to change you. It's not going to make your life any better. Jesus is. That was what He was trying to do. And they didn't want to hear it. The only way that a message or music is ever going to affect you in any real way is if that message or that music connects you to Jesus. And until we start to see Jesus, until we get connected to Him, and we start to see the world and the people around us, and ourselves the way that He does, we're going to be stuck in a very small group of people that think just like we do. That's why politics in our country are rapidly swirling down the drain of our national toilet because too many of us only connect with and talk to and spend time with people who are just like us, who agree with us. If you don't agree with me, I don't even want to hear what you've got to say. You can't be right because I know what I know and I believe what I believe. Right? That's what we do. Rather than understanding why someone believes or why someone might be different, we spend our time with people who agree with us, who have the same likes and dislikes, people who encourage our sinfulness and support our prejudices, that laugh at the race jokes that get told rather than challenge us with them. We surround ourselves with people just like us. People who would rather help us to sin then help us to turn and run from it. You know as well as I do that that's the state of our country today. And here's the tough part. Who makes up our country? <laughs> we do. You and I do. Yeah, we're not directly responsible for what happens in Washington, but we've got a say in it because by in part watching the news and taking the stands we do, we encourage the problem. This is a part of why we've got life groups coming. It's why we've got Alpha that we're going to run again and again and again. A lot of people have put a tremendous amount of time in order to prepare, in order to be ready, so that you and the people that you invite can come to a place where you can get to know Jesus better. You're going to get to know other Christians, other people who are going to help you make different choices, who are going to help you see a bigger picture, who are going to help you see the world in the way that Jesus does, not always the way that you do on your own. And that's why we're doing life groups in Alpha. To expand our view and increase our knowledge and grow us in relationship. We Care Ministry is up and running. Some of you are already in training to become one-on-one caregivers. So here's the question. Who do we include? Who do we reach out to? Who do we care for? Who do we welcome? Who do we invite? That's where it gets to be important, folks. The who. The focus is on Jesus. Then who do we talk to about Him? You see, the problems that the 
Jewish folks had in Nazareth that day was they had this entire religious structure that they had created. And Jesus began to threaten it on day one because what they had built was a religious structure full of people just like them. And they liked it that way. They all looked the same. They acted the same. They talked the same. They agreed to the same rules. And when someone broke them, they kicked them out and got rid of them. And so what Jesus did was to step in and say, you know what, Um, there's more than that. See, they gathered together with people who by appearance, by race, in all ways were the same. So the thing that it makes me wonder then is what about our churches? What, What about, most importantly, what about our church? What about the people who go to church here? I told you this was going to be about you this morning. What do you think? How do you see the world? What do you expect from church? What do you want? Do you you really want a church full of people who are just like you? Because here's what that means. You're going to have a church full of people who live like you do. Who talk like you do with that funny Minnesota accent you deny that we even have. People who look like you. People who speak and eat and drink just like you people who sin just like you. Is that really what you want? Or or do you want to gather with a group of people who are a little bit different than what you are? Maybe they don't look the same. Maybe they talk a little different. Maybe they can stretch you and help you grow, help you become more like Jesus and less like yourself. This is something I think about a lot. I have to. it's, It's part of my call. What are we going to look like? What, what is God calling us to look like? And what are we doing to either make that happen or, or to, to hinder that? Me? I'll tell you what. Here's my answer. I want a church focused on Jesus that helps people to look and act and talk more like Him no matter what their skin color is, no matter where or how they grew up, no matter what mistakes or choices or sins they've been plagued by in their life. I want a church that I get to be a part of that focuses on God's Word, not the color of someone's skin or the style of hair or the clothes that they choose to wear. I want a church that focuses on God's Word. That's what I want to be a part of. A church that's focused on bringing God's Word to a broken and sinful world, not on bringing people who are just like us. Because if we bring just us out into the world, all that we're doing is encouraging the culture that we're called to change. Outside of knowing and bringing God's Word and the Gospel of the good news of Jesus, we're not going to do much good. See, what happened that day in Nazareth, and this hit me this week, the people declared to Jesus, the Son of God, they declared the kind of church that they wanted. And I realize the same is true for us today. We will declare and stand for the kind of church that we want to create. That's a heavy responsibility for me, for the other pastors, for the elders. It's also a heavy responsibility for all of you because you're the ones who do the going. You're the ones who do the inviting. You're the ones who decide who you will share the good news of Jesus Christ and what you're learning and what you're doing to grow in this place with other people. Who will you bring it to? It becomes an awfully significant responsibility. We will declare and stand for the kind of church that we want to create. I'll tell you what, as long as I'm the senior pastor here, we're going to stand beside people of every skin color. We're going to stand beside people no matter where they are on their journey with Jesus. 
They may not even believe that He's real. They may have spent years with Him and strayed away, but we will stand beside people on their journey with Jesus and we will stand beside them with the truth of the good news that we have in the Bible. Here's one that's not so popular. We will stand for the nation of Israel as our spiritual ancestors. Who are your relatives in faith? The nation of Israel. And I don't really care how politically unpopular that might be. That is who we will stand with and stand for. You can't claim to be a Christian. You can't even claim to be a decent human being and call for the extermination of an entire race of people because their religious beliefs are different than yours. And you know what? That's becoming really popular and acceptable in America, and it's not. We won't stand for it here. I could uh, really get ready to start preaching now. But I won't because it's not Steve's soapbox day. But you've got to realize that as a church and as Christians, we need to make some decisions on who we are and what we're going to be about. So here's the bottom line. We don't get to choose who Jesus saves because Jesus came to save and redeem anyone who would put their faith and hope and trust in Him as their Lord and Savior. We do get to choose who it is that we share the incredible good news of the gift of salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus with. You don't get to choose who Jesus forgives. You do get to choose who you share forgiveness with. See the difference? I believe God used a, a beautiful color palette on the people of the world because God loves variety and, and diversity and individuality. And, and in that color palette that God's given us, He gives us the opportunity not to be colorblind because that would dismiss God's handiwork. But it gives us the opportunity to be people loving without regard to color or nationality or language or religious belief. Are we going to love people because they're God's people or not? See, if we're going to take the words of the Bible seriously, then one of our chief purposes on this earth should be to become more and more like the person of Jesus with His heart, His eyes, His love. So for those of us who uh, are of a Northern European descent, there's a couple of you here this morning. You think Jesus looks like this. Right? Looks like one of us. You couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. When you think, I want to be more like Jesus, I want to be more like Him, you're chasing down the wrong trail. In reality, if you're thinking about the vision of a person, then look at this guy. Now here's the deal. We're not supposed to become more and more physically looking like Jesus. That's not the point. That's the stuff that we worry about. Well, who took my blue-eyed Jesus away? Nobody. He wasn't. Well, what about his lightly brown long hair that was so neatly combed? He wasn't. We're supposed to see the world the way Jesus did. We're supposed to love people the way that Jesus did. Appearance, skin color, clothing, hairstyle, none of that matters to God. What God looks at is the heart. What God sees is the heart, and so should we. Because He sees yours and mine. And He's asking us to look past all the other things that we think are more important and to look at the hearts of the people around us. So, what will our church look like? You, me, Him? 
Maybe God will bless us with the full palette of His creation in every way that that means. I hope so. I really truly pray that that becomes the truth. But I also realize that our church, five years down the road, will look the way that you want it to. It'll be filled with the people that you want to be here. Because those are the folks that you'll invite. Those are the folks that you'll share the good news of Jesus with. Those are the folks that you'll say, you know what, we've got a week here ministry, and there's somebody there that would just really love the opportunity to talk with you. They'll walk through this with you. You know what you don't know, Jesus? We do this thing called Alpha. It's a great opportunity to get to know Him personally. You know, not only do we go to church, but we're a part of this thing called a life group, and it's awesome because a bunch of us get together every couple of weeks, and we just grow. So when we look five and ten years down the road, this place will look not like the way I want it to look. It'll look the way you want it to look. Because you are the ones who will invite or ignore. You're the ones who are going to fill the chairs. You're the ones who are going to tell people about Jesus. So who will you talk to? Who will you share with? You're going to look at hearts or are you going to look at outer appearances? God would have us look at hearts and hearts only. People. Let's pray. God, it's not a small thing to consider what it is that you've called us to be as a church. We all love to be here because it's a good place. It's a good place to come because you're here. Your Holy Spirit is here. God, we're blessed with, we're blessed with great worship. We're blessed with wonderful people that sit in the chairs every week. We're blessed with Your Word and and the opportunity to hear from it every week. God, we're also blessed with an opportunity to make a difference in the world around us. And that's where You're looking for us to be the ones who go, who invite, who welcome. God, my prayer would be that in five years' time, our church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whenever else we might have a service truly looks like a across the culture spectrum of our area. That all of the people who call this part of Minnesota home would be able to feel comfortable and call this place home. God, thank You for what You are doing here. Thank You for what You are doing in the hearts of every one of these people the hearts of the folks that were here at 8.30 and the ones who will be here on, on Wednesday night. God, because we come here not to have things easy. We come here to be challenged and to grow. God, I pray that You would use these words this morning to challenge us and to grow us. And if there are things that are inside of us that are not of You, ways that we look at people or see people, the ways that we think about people, that are not of You, God, I pray You would just knock all that stuff off of us with a big sledgehammer and bring us back into line with the way that Jesus sees the world. So easy to, to focus on our differences. It's so easy to focus on the sins of others. And yet, God, what You call us accountable to is our hearts, what we see and how we act. God, help us to be the church in all of its fullness that you called and created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You maybe don't realize this, but you've got incredible opportunity in front of you. Most people come into a church that's been around for a long time and their job was just to keep the doors open and keep it moving forward. You're building a church. You're creating a church community. You are the most active parts in deciding who we're going to be as we go forward. i got news for you. I work on it all the time. My preaching isn't going to get a whole lot better. I will keep trying, I promise, but it's not going to get much better. I mean, God can do anything. Let's admit that. But Who we are going forward, what we become going forward, is much more up to all of you than it is me. Much more than the other pastors or staff or the elders. You will help to shape the culture and the identity and the appearance of the Open Door Christian Church going forward for yourselves and your kids and your grandkids. And I believe that what Jesus wants more than anything else, what, what, what God desires of us, is to not look at people's problems, not look at people's uh, difficulties or sin or any of the things that we use as disqualifiers. Jesus came to address all of those. I believe that what God wants us to do is to get past outward appearances and get to the heart. And what we want is people to have an opportunity to meet Jesus for themselves and to grow as a disciple of His. No matter where they come from, no matter what they look like. To me, that would be the most exciting future that our church could have. And the mantle is going from a few of us who have carried it for a number of years to all of you. So what will you do? Who will we be? What will we look like? It's going to be exciting to find out. Thank you for coming this morning, folks. I know that was a challenging one, but um, it's just stuff we've got to talk about. Uh, we'll have worship again Wednesday night, 6.30, next Sunday at 8.30 and 10.30. Jeff is in the back to talk to you about life groups and Alpha. Jetty is in the back to talk to you about uh, serving at a Tuesday's table on the 29th. And I am here to say thank you for coming. Have a great week. We've got one more song before you go. I uh, hope we see you again soon.